3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, the owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Today is Wednesday, April the 3rd, and I am Will. <laughs> and I'm Edwin. It's just us in studio today. Um, mm. Yeah, bringing you into March. I su- uh, not March. Oh, oh goodness. April. <laughs> April. <laughs> April is where we are and fourth. what we're what we're all about. Um, so, have you been? I've been good. Um, I've I've landed myself in the first week of assignments, so Ooh. I haven't really had a week. I've had a haze of writing oh. and typing. Oh. <laughs> Poor thing. How about you, Will? What have you been up to? Uh, well, I've been to up to. Oh, um, what did I do? Uh, oh, I had my final performance. I do improv comedy classes. That's right. Yes, which was a lot of fun. And I had my final performance on the weekend, and oh. it was so fun. Oh, it was so good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you yeah. You come out of that being like, yes. Yeah, no, no, no. I think I did really well. Um, I was only on stage the one time, so not super well. <laughs> like with with improv comedy, you kind of have to like jump on stage and do a thing. Yeah. Um, and I came up with one idea. I was like, yeah, great. And then the rest of the time, I was like. I don't know what to do now. I'm just going to stand here and laugh at other people yeah. um, as I watch them performing. So I, I hope that's not like an analogue for the rest of the year where I start off with a great idea <laughs> and then I spend the rest of the year going, eh. Well, you know what they say. You need yeah. performers and supporters. It sounds like true. you are we providing need, both. We need rocks and stars. <laughs> rocks um, and stars. And I, I, I choose to be a rock. You choose to be a rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I always love that joke people say, yeah. which is like... um. Oh, the, the, what's the word, uh, conspiracy that rocks are actually soft and they only tense up when you touch them. <laughs> <laughs> so they're just like jelly <laughs> when you touch them. It's like, the cutest <laughs> idea. I know. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, we should stop touching rocks when they don't want to be touched, I guess. Uh, I um, suppose. I love yeah. rocks. I'm, I'm a complete rockhead. Yeah. Mm. No, ro- rocks are great. Um, so... <laughs> what have we got coming up for the show? Yeah. Or, yeah. So we've got a few things happening. Mm. Um, I can't speak for you, but my, my interview is coming out at 7.45. Yeah. Um, and we'll be talking to uh, Mario from Vic Uni. And we'll be talking to him about a research page paper he and his colleagues have just done talking about uh, the rise of right extremism mm-hmm. in Australia through um, or catalyst by or precipitated, precipitated by um, divisive politics and mm. political rhetoric. Mm. So that should be really interesting. Um, yeah. But I believe we have an interview before at 7.30. Yeah, Dr. Maria Pallotta uh, Chiaroli um, from the School of Health and Social Development at Deakin Uni is going to be coming in. Um, she's doing a survey of multicultural, multi-faith, um, LGBTQI plus people. Wow. So it's cool. all about the intersection of identities mm-hmm. and the survey, um, really tries to, is trying to get to people's experience of an intersection of discrimination. So okay. whether that's discrimination against your gender or sexual orientation, mm. um, in your cultural community or whether that's uh, ethnic and racial discrimination in your LGBTQI plus whatever community. Okay. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting to talk about that. Obviously, we don't come into this whole survey from a complete 
place of unknowing. Like mm. we kind of have a sense that, you know, gay spaces, for example, can be very discriminatory. And we have a sense that um, certain cultural contexts can can be very unfriendly to people of certain ethnic, um, no, no, certain um, cultural communities can be mm-hmm. unfriendly to people of gender and sexual minoritized identities. Yep. And so it'll be interesting to speak about that. Yeah. Um, that's at 7.30, so that's actually our first interview of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at 8 o'clock, we've got the national president of the National Union of Students, Desiree Tsai, coming on the show to talk about, among other things, the budget, um, which came out last night. If you are yep. not aware of this, <laughs> then... Um, Congratulations, I guess, on, on managing <laughs> to avoid this. We're going to talk a very, 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 very small amount mm. about that, um, the coverage of that in alternative news in just a moment. But Desiree is going to be coming on to talk about the budget um, from the point of view of young people and students. Ah, okay. Um, and also we'll be talking about a survey of student values that has oh. been put out by um, the NUS. So I'm interested to hear about that. Very funky. Mm. Um, well, I did think of something I did this, oh. this weekend. It, it wasn't just Study Fest. Um, Monday, I enjoyed the ABC's coverage. We went from uh, the weekly with Charlie Pickering mm. to um, Media Watch and then Q&A. And I have to say, this week, w- uh, media analysis was firing on all on all channels. Hey. Um, there was some really fantastic discussion. If you guys haven't seen it, I do suggest going to iView and just checking it out because, um, yeah, some, some amazing things kind of broken down in those three shows um, and some good political analysis going on, which I think we kind of need at the moment. And you know what? Mm. I think we might have a bit of Q&A to play during our Ooh. alternative news. We'll be right back after this. Wonderful. Some folks know about it, some don't. Wednesday breakfast you are listening to. Now, um, I think it might be worth jumping straight into it. We, we had a bit of a, um, a bit of a, what do you call it? Like a love in, I guess, um, over the fact that George from Tuesday breakfast yes. asked a fantastic question about, um, the level of new start, um, and how it has stayed the same for 25 years, which yeah. is absolutely shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll stop gabbing because we don't have a heap of time. Let's uh, let's actually hear what George had to say. Go ahead, George. 
This week, protesters will gather to mark 25 years since the rape of New Start was last raised. During that time, costs of living have soared, forcing many job seekers into poverty. The only actions from major parties have, to, have been to announce reviews into raising the rates. In the land of the fair go, how is this 25-year inaction acceptable? Arthur, that goes back to what you were saying earlier, yeah. so I'll start with you. Um, um, so yeah, that was that was George asking a really pertinent question on the failure of successive Australian governments mm. to raise New Start. Um, and uh, New Start, I, I don't know if any of our listeners won't know what New Start is, but it basically it's the social welfare supplement that um, is supposed to um, ensure that people who are in between work or who aren't able mm. to work but don't qualify for disability support pension or student allowance um, to to live. Um, mm. And it's it's the money that they're allocated um, as part of a society that cares about all of its people. Um, well, yeah, social ideally. welfare hopefully isn't dead. Mm. Um, but it's stayed at the same low rate for the yeah. last 25 years. It hasn't risen in real terms for 25 years. Um, and that's bad. It is. And we've had a few... Yeah. Um, I'm sure if I'm jumping in here, Will, but we've had a few people come on recently talking about the um, Parents Next and welfare systems within it, mm. and everyone we've talked to has just said structurally it's just it's such a punishment system. It's punishing mm. people for being on this mm. welfare system, which is societal support, really, at the yeah, end of the day. absolutely. Um, and, yeah, it, it talks about – it says, for example, um, one of the stats we got given from one of the people talking about Parents Next was uh, that it takes um, – a single mother usually on, you know, welfare, about four years to get off it because that's mm. how much it takes to re-establish yourself and, you know, move on from that that part. Yeah. Um, and yet she said through what the, the system that they're kind of mm. instituting and running, it's making people have to stay on it longer and more reliant because it's just such a toxic system for them to be on. Yes, and um, so we heard Tony Jones, the host of Q&A, um, asking questions of both the representative from the Liberal Party and the Labor mm. Party who were there at Q&A, um, and the gentleman from the Liberal Party, whose name I'm trying to find right now, um, had something really interesting to say um, that he personally was interested in seeing New, um, new Start raising um, he didn't say anything specific, um, and so we can't really say that this is a great move from the government. But it's just, yeah, the, the fact that you can't get away on air with saying that it's okay for Newstart to not have risen hmm. for 25 years. It's Arthur Senadinas, sorry, a senator um, from the Liberal Party. Um so, yeah, he was sort of put on the spot, I suppose, which is great because all of our government ministers and senators should be put on the spot hmm. on this issue in particular, but on, on all issues, I suppose. And um, so, yeah, the fact that he's, he feels like it's socially unacceptable because you can tell that he's kind of just saying it on the fly. It wasn't policy. Definitely. Um, he's he, broken ranks. I think he also, yeah. yeah, he did make a point that it was his perspective, not necessarily party policy. So yeah, he was, he was making that differentiation. Such a weasel word kind of way of going about it. But, well, um, definitely. But he had <laughs> to say something mm. because it's so blatantly, clearly not right that Newstar hasn't risen mm. at, to match with cost of living. Um so yeah, and then the and then the Liberal Party, uh, Labor Party representative, um, whose name also escapes me, um, 
sorry, Amanda Risworth, Rishworth, who is the early childhood spokeswoman of yep. the Labour Party, comes out and says, yeah, no, no, the Liberal Party, they've dropped the ball, they're terrible. Yeah. Um, we will start a review to see if um, New Start should be risen. Mm. It's, you know, never mind um, ACOS and all these other people who have been campaigning for ages to have New Start raised and have a lot of, you know, evidence to back up that New Start is not livable, it leaves you below the poverty line. Mm. Um, No, the Labour Party wants to run a... Review. Review? Yeah, before it'll do anything. Um, I think part of that is because they're implicated in how it's not risen for 25 years, because we haven't had 25 years of a coalition government. We've had a a mixture of essentially the two parties. Mm. Um, And so they both completely failed poor Australians and Australians who rely on social welfare to Mm. survive. Um, Yeah. I don't know if I'm saying anything that our listeners might already think. Um, <laughs> Sounds like you just, just need to get this off your chest, yeah, Will. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going through a, a weird period in finances, and so I just kind of, like, just all of this makes me feel very touchy. Definitely. Um, but anyway, uh, shall we move on? Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, so what else is happening in the world uh, What's happening this week? Yeah, yes. Well, we've got a whole lot of events, don't we? Yeah, we do have a few things kind of going on. Um, so, first off, we'll be playing a song a little bit later, or maybe in a minute or so, um, from a band that will be having a upcoming gig. So I'll get you the details for that after the thing. But also kind of around the city, oh, there's a few little bits and pieces. Well, there's the Jaburung, um fundraiser that's that? happening tonight. So as some of you folks may know, there's been a lot of coverage on 3CR. Down in Jaburung country, um, around Ararat, um, there are a number of culturally significant trees. There's a birthing tree, 800 years old, which is threatened by a road um, I don't know if it's duplication in particular, but it's a widening of the road and a rerouting of the Western Highway um, that threatens all of these roads. And this is despite community um, protest and this is despite a camp that's been set up um, off the Western Highway for for months now. Um, and so in support of the camp um, that is protecting Jaburung cultural heritage, Jaburung being the traditional owners of that land, um, there's a fundraiser tonight at the Gasometer here in Fitzroy. Okay. Um, well, I think it's technically Collingwood. I'm not 100% on that. But anyway, <laughs> the Gasometer, it's a, it's an institution. If you just type it into whatever search engine you use, um, here in, um, then you'll be able to find out. Um, they're running a fundraiser tonight at seven. Um, there are free tickets for, um, Indigenous people, First Nations people, but, um, I think you'll have to reach out to the organisers. Um, you can probably get onto Niukugari on Twitter and Facebook. I mean, if you're Indigenous, you probably know who we're talking about, so I don't need to give you the handle. <laughs> um, but otherwise, tickets at the door are $15, um, and I think there's a there's a different lower price if you are low-waged. Um, so consider going to that. It's money going to a great, great, um, great function. Um, there's also a community dinner this Friday. Um, it's on the 5th, so this Friday. Starts at 7.30, and that's happening at the Victoria Street Mall in Victoria Street, Coburg. So this is, um, as as I understand it, um, Friday community dinners happen fairly regularly. It's like an institution, um, and now they're putting their money towards the Jaburung Tent um, um, Embassy. And so you can head along. If you want to find out more, call Sarah Wise on 0457-002-930. That's 0457 002 930 and um 
you can find out more about this uh, this community event that's happening on Friday evening. It's it's all sorts of food. There'll be um, halal options. There are vegan and vegetarian options. Um, it sounds like a heap of fun. I'm mm. definitely going to try to head down. Sounds good. Um, but yeah, uh, that's that's what we've got going on. And these are two different. Um, they're organised by two different groups, and so Sarah might not just because I've given out a phone number might not know much about the event that's happening tonight. Tonight is uh, very much a pub-based kind of huge musical acts um, <laughs> supporting and lending their time um, to supporting the Jabberung, um Heritage Protection Embassy. So. Yeah, tonight, 7 o'clock, Gasometer. Gasometer. Yep. Friday night, Victoria Street Mall in Coburg, 7.30. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so I was wondering, do we want to jump to our next segment? Or? Absolutely, yeah, yes. Um, so uh, we love Indigenous Rights Radio. Yes. It's a fantastic <laughs> resource. And um, this week, they were talking about Indigenous women's health. We've got World Health Day coming up on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's Friday, it's the 7th, yes. Um, yes. No, 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 sorry, that's the weekend. Um, and so in this particular segment, they're talking about the very specific um, challenges in terms of health that Indigenous women health um, face. So let's listen in. Indigenous women represent one of the most vulnerable and marginalized populations in the world. For centuries, they have been subjected to relentless discrimination and different types of violence based on gender, indigeneity, and class. They are deprived from even basic human rights, such as access to health services, education, and employment. This Indigenous Rights Radio program depicts Indigenous women and access to quality health services. Indigenous women are vulnerable to inequities in healthcare services because of their identity. Though they are facing many health-related problems, healthcare services are not evenly distributed in many countries, says Hilary Weaver from Lakota Nation, who is associated with University of Buffalo. Oh, there are many, many health problems in indigenous communities. Um, almost every health disparity, we're at the bottom of every list. So there are mental health issues, there are substance abuse issues, diabetes is a big problem for Native Americans, there's a lot of trauma, a lot of stress, cancer, heart problems, suicide. But I think many of these health issues have a common root, and many of it can tie back to colonization and the stresses that we have there. We do not have the same access to health care. We have disproportionate stress. We have disproportionate violence in our communities. And we still continue with the colonial oppression. So we don't have the same economic opportunities. Many instances show that indigenous women face disparities in accessing health care. Hillary Weaver further says that one of the causes of such health disparities is due to the impact of colonization. Well, I think it's the history of colonization and the fact that we've lost sight of that. We think of colonization as something in the past, but we don't recognize that it sets the current economic structures, it sets our current life possibilities or hinders us in other ways. So it's like this invisible force that um, limits our educational opportunities, 
and causes all of these stresses that I was mentioning. So I, I do think colonization is still the root. Indigenous women particularly are vulnerable to inequities in health because of their identity. At various factors prevent indigenous peoples from using healthcare services. Governments in many countries tend to ignore the intersection of gender and indigenousness. If indigenous communities' access to health in the United States is to take as a case in point, Ruth Anna Buffalo, public health expert from South Dakota, says that the quality of health care is poor, which has resulted low life expectancy. That there are very heavy barriers to access to health, even access to quality health, you know, because there's a, a stigma out there that indigenous people within the United States receive free health care. Um, well, you know, through the treaty obligations um, with the U.S. federal government, the health care that is provided through the Indian Health Services has never been fully funded. Um, and so it's very, there are, they are making improvements, you know, they're working to improve um, the health care delivery of services, but um, within our communities, you know, going to the Indian Health Services is is oftentimes the last resort. Um, there's many issues on on all different levels within Indian Health Services, but um, the quality of care is very poor. Um, and within our Indigenous communities here in the United States, we have uh, such low life expectancies. Um, our Within my hometown of Mandaree, um, our tribal government is looking at lowering the age for our elders. To be considered an elder, they're considering lowering the age because a lot of our people are dying, are not living very long. Um, and a, a lot of the health conditions that people are dying from prematurely can be prevented um, if we had access to to good health care if we had access to healthy foods. Um, stress is another contributing factor to chronic illness. Um, within Mandaree, we are coined as, now today coined as the heart of the Bakken oil formation. And so there's a lot of um, implications that will affect our health. The reasons that explain the health gap between indigenous and non-indigenous peoples are complex and varied. They might include socioeconomic indicators. Alexei Sekarev, member of Experts Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, a subsidiary body of Human Rights Council, says many countries lack political will to ensure right to health of indigenous populations. When it comes to the right to health, so we cannot say that in, in, in the most healthy states, uh, in the Western countries, we have like a significantly better situation uh, on the right to health than uh, in, in the developing countries or uh, other countries. So the, the specifically indigenous situations all over the world, including wealthy and non-wealthy countries, is um, challenging. Uh, and and uh, as I said, sometimes it is, uh, it is the problem of, uh, of finances and uh, in, in most cases, it, it is the problem of the political uh, political will, uh, the lack lack of political will, uh, or um, 
uh, low expertise uh, among among those decision makers who are responsible for implementing indigenous policies. In both developed and developing countries, indigenous peoples tend to be disadvantaged when it comes to their health. The report produced by United Nations in the State of the World's Indigenous Peoples published in the year 2009 says that internationally, indigenous peoples experience lower health status and are more likely to experience lower life expectancy and higher rates of disabilities and diseases than non-indigenous peoples living in the same country. Similarly, a study conducted in 23 countries among 28 populations in the year 2016, jointly by the Lowitza Institute and Australia's National Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Research and Lancet, the UK-based medical journal titled Indigenous and Tribal People's Health concluded that the maternal mortality of indigenous women is two times higher than non-indigenous women, says Lamo Yangjin Sherpa, one of the contributors of this study. I was one of the research collaborators from Nepal for the uh, Lancet um, Lovitsa Institute um, uh, research collaboration to produce indigenous health report. Uh, we were 23 countries together. Uh, we, found, we looked at the uh, incidence of maternal mortality between indigenous and non-indigenous, compared the data between indigenous and non-indigenous women in Nepal. And uh, I had data only from uh, Sulukumu district, uh, where we compared indigenous, four indigenous communities, Sherpa, uh, Rai, uh, Tamang and Magar against uh, non-indigenous uh, females and we found that the maternal mortality was um, two times higher amongst um, indigenous women compared to uh, non-indigenous uh, women in that area. Lamo Yangjin Sherpa, who is also a medical doctor by profession, had conducted her study in Sulukmo district, the mountainous districts of Nepal, where there lies the world's highest mountain, Mount Everest. The government of Nepal has taken one-size-fits-all concept, but the language is one of the main barriers to access to health care services in Nepal for indigenous women who speak and understand their mother tongue and who are living in remote areas, says Lamo Yangjin Sherpa. Nepal had a centralized um, system where we had um, one-size-fits-all concept. Uh, most of the indigenous people in Nepal uh, live in the mountain and hilly regions. Uh, they have their own culture. Uh, they have their own language, uh, whereas if we look into the state's resources, most of the information, whether it's related to health services or whether uh, it's related to um, access to any, any kind of services, education or health-wise, uh, the information is um, given in uh, the state's uh, language or uh, Nepali language, uh, which is not the primary language used by most of the indigenous females. Um, so 
We all already know that um, access to information is a huge barrier uh, for these indigenous uh, females, uh, which is why um, the, um, even though the services may be available, they do not understand the value of the um, services that are available at the government facilities and uh, why those services are given, uh, what kind of information are available, all those um, pamphlets, um, IEC, BCC material, everything is in Nepali language or in English language. So it's very difficult for the indigenous women to get those information. It is important to look at both gender and indigenous identities when providing health services. Therefore, government officials should acknowledge the importance of including indigenous women in health plan reforms and conducting consultation prior to catering the services because at times the services might not be acceptable to indigenous populations. Further, says Sherpa. All the countries have found language as a barrier um, because language is a barrier uh, in understanding uh, what kind of information is being relayed that has been found across not only in education but also in health. Uh, that has been found across all the uh, countries. The other thing is uh, most of the um, plans, whether it is related to indigenous health or indigenous education, is not um, made, or the policies are not made in consultation with indigenous peoples. Uh, it is not discussed with us whether those plans are appropriate for, for us, whether those are um, acceptable to us. Uh, you know, it is imposed on us. So that's why I think in order to make policies in the future for indigenous people, uh, it should be conducted in close consultation with indigenous uh, members of the society. Oh, why? Oh, why? For more on indigenous rights, visit cs.org slash rights. And that was um, Cultural Survival by Indigenous Rights Radio. Uh, we'll be right back. G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR reception 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser.
On March 16, the Sintani region of Jayapura in West Papua was hit by massive flooding and landslides, killing at least 89 people, with more than 6,000 people evacuated from their home. 74 people are missing and 159 have been injured. This disaster is the result of torrential rain coupled with devastations of the mountains. Also poor waste management polluting and clogging waterways, leading to flash flooding and mudslides. At this time, West Papuan people need your help more than ever. Help us reach our goal to raise $10,000 to provide emergency supplies, food, first aid, nappies, baby food and milk formula. All money raised will go directly to Yayasan Abdi Budaya Nusantara, a foundation facilitating the evacuation camp in Sentani, West Papua. Donate online at https chaforg project flood relief for West Papua. West Papuan people need you. It's time to help and don't make them feel alone. And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast here on 3CR Community Radio. Um, the time right now is 7.33. Sorry to our interviewees. We started a little bit late. Um, but we may as well get straight on to it. I've got in the studio here Dr. Maria... Uh, I'm sorry. Dr. Just Maria. say Dr. Maria. Dr. I like Maria. that. <laughs> <laughs> you said your students call you Dr. Maria PC. Yeah. Politicurity. That's good. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, and uh, Dr. Maria is a principal re- is the pre- principal researcher at the AGMC, which is the Australian GLBTIQ Multicultural Council. Yeah. And then we've also got Buddy, who is the vice president of the AGMC. Welcome to 3CR. Thank, Thank you. Good morning. <laughs> Thank you for coming in. Um, so we're talking about um, this survey, the discrimination in the lives of multicultural and multi-faith LGBTIQ plus Victorians. Um, and so it sounds like we've got a fairly specific remit, which is fantastic, um, because that means that the information that comes out of it will be really valuable. We're not coming at this from a, a place of not knowing, though. We've got uh, mm. kind of an understanding of generally the experiences of LGBTQI plus people from multicultural, multi-faith backgrounds. But what, what does this survey specifically seek to, to produce? Well, what we want to do is actually, and we've been funded by... Um, GPC, the mm. Multicultural uh, Minister, which is fantastic as well because it's mm. coming from the Multicultural Department. And what we're trying to look at is um, the intersections or the, the different ways that different kinds of discrimination are experienced by LGBTIQ people. And we're taking a settings approach, which means that we're looking at what happens in queer venues, we're mm. looking at what happens in a mosque or uh, a synagogue mm. or other religious venues, then we're looking at what happens in cultural events. So we're saying, well, you know, wherever you go as an LGBTIQ person of a particular faith or a particular culture, you can be yourself, but in many ways you can't. And mm. we want to map what's happening in different sections and what happens when you try and get help who do you go to what responses do you get say from police or service providers and and then we're going to really map that out and hand that over to government so that we can get some funding and put it into the anti-racism action plan yeah great um so how does this um your your research uh contend with different people's understandings of what it means to be different types of queer whether that's lgbt L, G, G, T, I, Q, so on. 
Uh, but so I, I think w- w- what Maria has been saying, and and one one thing that we are very looking forward with this research project is to actually quantify all those experiences because we heard so many, like you said, we heard so many anecdotal um, stories and uh, narratives, but it hasn't actually been captured in a data set. So we're trying to capture it. Um, in, in, to answer your question, we we realize that you know the, the whole communities as we call it is plural we get mm. so many people coming from so many different identities um, and there's just about their sexuality gender identity and intersex status plus the cultural and religious backgrounds as well and it, this is this is just the beginning so we are very aware that we, we started this project and this is hopefully going to lead on to more research and more um, services um, for the communities because we, we are limited we can't capture all of the identities and we are very upfront with that and mm. you know if, if there are some um, people out there that felt that their um, identity their experiences are not captured in this data set we do want to know that so the next yes. time we are lobbying for something like this to happen again we can actually start working on those those um there's, there's um, I call it the micro communities, you know, because there's so many micro communities where we, we are we st- we're trying to capture as much as we can. Yeah, mm. and certainly I can expect this is just from a completely uneducated point of view, but like that the experience of, say, the student Chinese, for example, um, LGBTQI population will be very different from the Australian Chinese LGBTQI population. So, um, how do we? I, I guess we can't really talk about expectations, but we do. We do kind mm. of have some insight into how different communities um, express queerness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, how, how do you think we'll capture that? Yeah, I mean, Maria and I have been having quite a few conversations mm. on this, and we, we kind of said, you know, when we talk about racism, we also have to acknowledge that racism exists within multicultural communities, and we yes. talk about all these different layers. Um, those who were born here um, can have uh, can have racist attitudes towards those who just newly arrived. Um, the, uh, Maria said this so eloquently the other day. You know, Why? So Thank Thank you, boss. <laughs> 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 just the established communities, uh, communities that arrived here in the 50s and in the 60s after the World War II, the post-war communities, um, tend to have such negative views towards the new um, emerging mm. communities. You know, they're, they're saying a lot of Af- um, bad stuff about the African communities. Um, and they, that's, they're still holding prejudices against the Asian communities. And that's Vietnamese, Chinese, um, Indonesians, where I came from, and a lot of other communities as well. So it's very interesting when we talk about racism, discriminations, prejudices. Um, as, 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 people, as, a, as, a, as people who work in this project, we're also very, very aware that the stories is not always going to be about the Anglo-Australians against multicultural communities. There will be stories about multicultural communities against each other. Either is based on the racial groups, either is based on the nationalities, ethnicities, even faith. Yeah. Faith is one thing that we've also been hearing anecdotally. And once again, we're trying mm-hmm. to capture this in the data set. Anecdotally, we know there's still a lot of Islamophobia from all communities. So mm-hmm. how, and, and this will be very interesting when we talk about intersectionality, mm-hmm. about how all of these experiences shape an individual's identity, their, their perception of their social reality. But also one thing that we really want to know as well, 
what are the strategies to maintain their well-being? You know, what, like Maria said, what are the support systems? Because we don't want it to be just all doom and gloom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We want to actually also learn from people's strategies about their resilience and whether resilience is an independent, is, is an individual thing or whether it is a community thing. Mm. Yeah. But my, I guess the other concern that we're looking at as well is that sometimes in this neoliberal way of looking at things, it's like where's your, you know, where's your resistance, your resilience and, mm. and what are you going to do? But the other thing we're capturing, as Buddy said, is we're looking at structures. We're looking at, you know, these services that are supposed to be in place. And so we're looking at the political, the legal, the cultural structures of our society to say, well, you know, what are you doing in terms of this? But the strengths are really important and the positives we're capturing because the last thing we want to do is go into... Unfortunately, quite a colonial mindset, which is, oh, yeah, you come from Iran, therefore it's all, do-, you know, as mm. you said, Woody, doom and gloom. Well, actually, let's look at what aspects of that religion mm. or that culture are really powerful and important. But what's overlaid that with some negativities and how does that get played out in Australia? And I love what you said about this, you know, mold- I mean, I'm from an Italian post-war um, family and I just see sometimes in Italian and Greek communities and in Italian and Greek LGBTIQ communities, racism and um, appalling discriminations against emerging communities and arrivals. So, yeah, we need to try and get into mm. those nitty-gritties. And if we can't do it through our survey, we've got our you know, buddies running focus groups. We're doing one-on-one very confidential interviews. Can we talk about the, the survey in particular? So yeah. um, the way that people will be accessing this primarily is online. Um, uh, now, how... If we want to really get to the specific um, experiences of people from various cultural backgrounds, they'll be linguistically diverse as well. Yep. Um, how, how are we contending with that, that people may not speak um, English fluently or they won't really understand the questions? What's, what's the, the way you're getting past that? Yeah. Well, what we're trying to do is if they can contact us mm. or just somehow phone the AGMC or contact us. So my phone number... My specific phone number is on everything. So we just need someone to call us mm-hmm. with an interpreter. We have got people from diverse cultures and faiths yeah. in our organisation, our membership. Yeah. So we can very privately run mm. through the survey with people. We can actually have a hard copy print, you know, printed out so that mm. people can go through that. We can organise interpreters to actually mm. analyse it with people yeah. or sit down with them. That's, that's very important, the linguistic and linguistic diversity and and definitely we're not we don't want names as as Buddy said we've we've done our living and loving and diversity book we've got lots of stories we've been running forums and social united we feast events we need what I guess some organizations and government say is evidence so we need mm. some statistical analytical evidence to go you know and we're so lucky in a way to be in Victoria because <clears throat> we're not looking at racism through a heteronormative view we're saying actually racism is experienced by whole sorts of sectors in our community mm. you also answered my next question is <laughs> people who don't have access to the internet um, yes so so basically you're you're hoping that people will be able to reach out to the AGMC and to you in particular yeah. about yeah. Maria this um the survey yeah. um is there any sort of outreach as well like are you speaking to organizations what's yes. your what's your tactic on that yeah so mm. what we're doing is we're go- especially with Buddhist focus groups so we're actually working with organizations of diverse ages diverse communities so we go out to I think we've got about 32 multicultural Mm. multi-faith support group 
groups. We're going to be running workshops through Minus 18. So we're actually doing outreach to different service providers like the yeah. Centre for Multicultural Youth, the Centre for Ethnicity and Health. Everyone's been amazing. Everyone's been fantastic coming mm. on board, getting our information out there. Because as Buddy said, you know, this acronym, LGBTIQ+, it's so easy to say, but within that acronym, we really want to, okay, what are women's perspectives, cisgendered women's perspectives? Mm. What are non-binary perspectives? And then deal with and address gender and uh, culture and, and faith. Mm. Wonderful. So you can access the survey at agmc.org.au slash racism survey. Yes. So it's really just the AGMC's website slash racism survey. Uh, we'll also put up all of the contact details online. Yes, but if you. you're listening right now and you have a pen in your hand, then I'll give you Dr. Maria Palotta Kiroli's phone number. And please call me Maria. Yes. <laughs> just, call, just call it Maria. And the Thanks phone number is 0414-804-529. If you want to share your experiences, um, I'm certain, Maria, that we'll find a way for you to do that. Absolutely, um, because we, we are working with many, we, we're working with mm. refugee communities as well, mm. and um, we're very aware of issues around language, and, and, and also someone might just want to talk to us about trust. Mm. You know, who are you? Can I meet you somewhere? Like when, I, when we were doing the Queer Muslim Report, mm. you know, sometimes the best place to have an interview was between the library shelves at Monash Uni, you know, <laughs> safe space or a coffee shop. So yep. we're happy to go out anywhere and everywhere and just be supportive and listen. Yeah, they're doing a survey because they want to hear from you, listener. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so definitely get in touch. I've been speaking to Maria or Dr. Maria Pellahokinoli, <laughs> who is the principal <laughs> researcher you. of the AGMC, and Buddy, who is the vice president of the AGMC. Buddy, Maria, thank you so much for joining us. You're thank welcome. you. Thank you for having us. No Wednesday breakfast. We'll be right back. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Buchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Are you passionate about films, interested in cultural diversity or wanting to get exposure for your own film? The Indonesian Film Festival is just around the corner with our main events running from March the 23rd to April the 10th. There will be free film screenings, panel discussions and for filmmakers there's the short film competition. This year's theme is The Unknown and film submissions close on the 3rd of March. What are you waiting for? Go and check it out. The Indonesian Film Festival, iwfaustralia.com, a 3CR supporter. Kajagurujan, Kanderman, this is Stephen Pigram. 
from up Broomway, Yarrow Country, and it's great to be down in Melbourne, and you listen to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. And you're listening to 3CR. We're just coming up to about 7.47 in the morning, on a Wednesday morning. Uh, For our next interview, we'll be talking to Dr. Mario from the Institute for Sustainable Industries and Livable Cities at Victoria University. Uh, He and his associates have been doing a little bit of research um, around uh, the networks and narratives of far-right movements kind of thing. So looking at... Uh, the rise of extreme right movements in Victoria, and kind of um, this this rise seen through almost political rhetoric. Anyway, I'll get him to come on the show to talk a little bit more. He can explain a lot better. Um, good morning, Mario. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm great, thank you. Um, I suppose just hitting off with uh, the research that you've kind of been conducting and looking into, uh, what inspired this? Um, well, the... I'm I'm from Germany, so when I arrived in in Australia eight or nine years ago, I was surprised that there was no research um, on the far right in in Australia. So it took a while until we we found ways to to get this off the ground, and then in 2017 we we managed to um, start that research, which was a 18-month research project at Victoria University on um, various dimensions of the far right, how they are the themes that they um, their ideologies and their, their networks in, in Victoria. And I suppose monitoring 12 um, far-right kind of yeah. groups uh, through social media and stuff like that, uh, how did you choose to run your research um, uh, through the choice of kind of qualitative data? Why, why, did, you, why um, did you use this? It was a, it was a multi-method study, so we, mm-hmm. we looked at uh, social media. Um, back then, when we started the research, Facebook was the main platform used by those groups that we wanted to look at. Um, it wouldn't be the case anymore, but that's something I may be able to talk about later. Yeah. Um, so social media was one component, but we also did um, interviews with supporters of far-right groups, different far-right groups, mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the context of far-right rallies in, in Melbourne. So the main, the main focus was on, on social media analysis, which was a massive, produced massive amount of data. So we had, um, we counted five almost 60,000 Facebook users on those uh, 12 Facebook pages, mm-hmm. um, 41,000 posts and 900,000 comments. And we analysed the content, the textual content of those comments and posts and, and tried to analyse it in different different ways, mainly statistically, but also in, in terms of we zoomed in and looked at the, the how they construct arguments and things like that. And that's obviously a huge amount of data to come out yeah. of this research. Um, could you kind of summarise, what were your main findings from this re- research? Well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, yeah. obviously there's a lot of stuff in there. Definitely. Um, Sorry, I've got to put you on spot. I, one of the things that I, I tend to say first is that um, when the public debate around the far right emerges, it's often as if it's a homogenous 
group, mm-hmm. and I mean our analysis, and we are not the first to say that, is that it's anything but that. So it's highly diverse. It's very fragmented. There are different types of far-right groups, and we can't just all label them the same badge. I mean, we use the term far-right as, a, as an umbrella term, but underneath that umbrella, there's a lot of complexity and diversity. We found groups that are primarily we developed first of all a, a typology of anti-islam groups then a group that we that have a broader agenda um that we called cultural superiority groups um and then on the extremist end we have groups that are openly neo-nazi fascist groups so this is a broad range of different types and again every group that we looked at was again different Internally, and then when you look at the, the people who support or who follow those groups, again, these are individuals who all have their personal um, motives, drivers, and agenda. So it's highly complex down to the individual, actually. And I suppose referencing this fragmentation and the fact that the research is kind of around mapping networks, have we seen an increase in a certain type of group or um, the emergence of a certain type of well, activity? The- yeah, they shifted a lot. I mean, the ideologies that were, or the predominant ideologies shifted during the, during the research. So it's a highly, uh, sort of fragile influx, um, movement, or rather movement, mm. in, in plural. Um, initially, uh, that was actually before we started the research, anti-Islam groups were the most publicly visible ones. We claim Australia, you know, I mean, they, mm-hmm. they were in, in Bendigo, but, but then in 2015 and 16, new groups emerged as a breakaway groups from these, um, anti-Islam groups, and they've become more active, especially in the, in, in the offline space. Uh, so online, we still see the highest level of prolific activity in, in anti-Islam groups, but they are not offline, whereas other groups have moved away from, um, social media more and more, I mean, not entirely, but more and more, and are more active on a, like on a, on a local level, okay. offline, basically, more increasing. And that's, I mean, the, the ideology has also shifted with this. So inter-Islam rhetoric is obviously strong, still strong, and has always been strong, but it's, it's decreasing in some groups, whereas in other groups it's, it's just sort of the defining feature. Hi, Mario. This is Will, um, one of the hosts of Wednesday Breakfast as well. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to ask a question on the topic of um, Islamophobia. It just seems yeah. like um, as um, the sort of the... the mainstream political rhetoric in Australia seems to shift toward one of normalising Islamophobia, yeah. in particular in mainstream politics. Do you, do you see that having a direct effect on these f- very fragmented sort of decentral um, right-wing groups? Is that something well, that we're seeing? Well, it has a, a direct effect on, on, the, on the debates within these groups because mm. they just refer to it, yes, but it doesn't. I mean, there's this discussion whether media causes or the public debate causes certain mm. things. I mean, it's obviously more complicated than that. I mean, the media sort of mediates, that's what I guess <laughs> yeah. I call it media, um, the, between the, 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 the political um, discourse and the, the reception, receptive end, which is the society, basically. So political media reports something that is going on in the political realm. Um, there, is, there has been, and for, for many years and actually decades, there has been an anti-Islamic anti-Islam narrative out there which has continuously gained momentum in, in Australia and other Western societies. I mean, we, it was it started, well, you could go back centuries, but it, let's start in um, 
with 9-11, the war on terror that unfolded mm-hmm. after that. I mean, it was the securitization, uh, which was particularly um, strong in Australia, even before there were any attacks in Australia. Then ISIS had then emerged in the Middle East. Uh, there, there were um, ISIS-inspired or allegedly ISIS-inspired um, attacks or, mm-hmm. or plots in Australia. So it, it contributed and it increased and increased and increased and it created a, a, a sort of political rhetoric contributed to that um, a sort of moral panic um, where, where it was almost normal to be fearful of, of mm. Islam. Uh, and that created the, a, a societal climate that contributed to this, and um, to the. I, we would we argue that it contributed to the rise of the far right through these anti-Islam movements, um, which we saw in response to the Lind Cafe siege, um, and then in Bendigo, um, where the, the mosque application attracted so much attention interstate um, and helped these far right groups, initially anti-Islam groups, to to rise, and then we had, as I said, breakaway groups that broadened their agenda. Mm. And touching on this uh, divisive political rhetoric, um, obviously uh, um, your associate Deborah Smith really wrote an article discussing this, but also the research kind of draws this out, that um, far-right groups kind of use divisive politics to kind of feed their ideology, and that's been giving them momentum. Um, Could you kind of tell us what does... Divisive political rhetoric kind of look like. What does it sound like? You've given us the idea of um, well, making. Even, even after after um, the, the, the horrific Christchurch um, attack, there was a lot of discussion around. I mean, blaming the media and the and public rhetoric. And I mean, mm-hmm. the typical examples that were mentioned there were um, uh, Dutton's uh, um, comments on um, in the context of terrorist attacks that most of them were Lebanese, so we shouldn't have let, it was a big mistake to let Lebanese um, into the country. I mean, this is, in a way, this follows the same argument as um, what um, Senator Enning Fraser said, mm-hmm. um, Fraser Enning said, um, people come in and cause terrorism, basically. Mm. Um, so it's, it's an immigration problem. This is the kind of rhetoric that um, the, the far right, obviously, like and they refer to these things mm-hmm. and they use it and they put it on their on their Facebook pages and and so forth. This, I mean, there has been many. It, it's it's a dog whistling policies uh, mm-hmm. uh, rhetoric, and but it also comes down to you don't need the dog whistle anymore. When Tony Abbott said Islam is in need of reform, that sounds like well, yeah. that's something that many people have said. Um, but what he actually what what he what the message is that if it doesn't, then it has no place in Australian society. So that fuels this idea that they are outsiders, they are they don't belong unless they follow certain ideas. Of, so of it's like that double-edged sword or that kind of subtle or not so subtle, I suppose, presupposition yeah. within political rhetoric. Yeah. Well, you know, some, some, as I said, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's not so, so subtle. And there have been yeah. numerous examples. Uh, also, the, the way uh, we talk about offshore detention mm-hmm. um, dehumanizes um, certain groups um, in response to the, the recent, um, you know, the, the, the new now new law, uh, Medivac, where, you know, urgent medical treatment is provided to people and they can then, or to asylum seekers on, in offshore detention, they can come to Australia for this treatment, for these treatments, and you co- refer to them as uh, rapists and murderers. I mean, that's, mm. that's dehumanizing and that's what, oh, this is creating a, a perception that of Fear, fueling fear and the perception of danger um, that is not... I, I might add that, that Australia is, as far as I know, the only country where, where the far right 
organized a street rally in 2016 in, in Melbourne that was not um, against government policy, but in favor, in support of um, government policy. This is something really unheard of in, in, in Europe, where, where far-right groups protest always against, in, in, mm. you know, to protest government policies. But in Australia, they loved it. Definitely. For detention definitely. So the research kind of pulls out definitely some really interesting things about this, like uh, divisive politics and that found yeah. f- as a foundation for hope kind of for these groups. And then um, the discussion about uh, the mobilization of the groups uh, has really kind of shifted. So the, the mentioning of uh, kind of remove, retreating from the strategy of building kind of huge social movements to more exclusive, yeah. smaller groups like, you know, yeah. men's only clubhouse. Uh, what's, what's the danger in this? You know, vigilante groups, groups suggesting that they're moving towards more crime threshold kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I, what I mentioned before, that it's, mm. not, it's not primarily um, a um, social online, like an online movement where they were trying to um, recruit massive amounts of people to mm. represent the, what they would call the silent majority. Um, that didn't work because yeah. because the, the the rallies didn't attract that many people, and then the counter protests were usually and always much bigger. So they they changed that uh, strategy, and we we have reasons to think that this was actually a strategic decision mm-hmm. um, to retreat into other forms of activism that go beyond legitimate forms of political activism, we, we would argue. Okay. I mean, I'm not saying that a clubhouse is in itself an illegitimate form of political activism, but they are creating grassroots movements. Uh, vigilante groups would definitely be problematic because it challenges the monopoly of violence that the law enforcement has. So that's mm-hmm. a, gover- like a democratic principle that you can't take matters into your own hands, so to speak. So, and it, it disappears from from the... It's less visible, it's less accessible, it's harder for law enforcement to find out what's actually going on, so they mm-hmm. have to take different measures. So it's more difficult, it's action-oriented, it, and it affects people then more directly. Um, okay. There's a higher level, uh, the, the risk level is obviously higher than if they don't, as, as compared to people who just sit on online and create or contribute to a, um, a social climate or, you know, the echo chamber. Definitely. And uh, I suppose the last question I've kind of got, or, uh, yeah, question prompt, I suppose, is um, Q&A was playing on Monday yeah. night and I had John Roskam from the panel, uh, and we, we were discussing this. Um, yeah. He mentioned the whole debate around free speech versus hate speech. Yeah. How does this sort of, and what his argument, the strain of his argument really was, uh, not all racists become violent, uh, thus you should be allowed to be racist because it, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily equate violence. But my, my argument back would be that all racist violence, race, violence that is motivated by racism starts with racism. Yeah. So where does this kind of fit into your research? Yeah, I think it's a bit weak that, that argument that not, not all, um, racist, racist became, become violent. And, I mean, violence is obviously much broader in, mm-hmm. When you discuss violence, it's not just punching someone. It's there's verbal violence. There's, I mean, it's on the on Q and A. I think someone mentioned that uh, words leave scars. I think that was mm-hmm. one of the. So I mean, it contributes to a, a feeling of communal vi- violence, of feeling unsafe. It it, it it doesn't mean that we have to. Um, I think that free speech is not under threat in Australia. And mm-hmm. it, there, there's no, there were no, there, there's no new legislation that was introduced that, you know, curbs free speech or anything. And the fact that these groups can navigate and maneuver around and, and, and express their things, um, 
is an, an, an example that free speech does exist. I mean, these people who claim about the lack of free speech, they sit on Q&A and say these things. So it's, it's a bit ironic to claim there's a lack of free speech. But free speech, as, as the debate always goes, is never is not an unconditional right. Like all mm-hmm. all rights are not unconditional. And I recently heard someone using the example that you can't scream in a, when you're on a plane. You can't scream. There's a I have a bomb in my hand luggage because that has consequences. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, is this free speech? No, it's not. And everybody, everyone would agree. And then we are we are. Uh, a government or a society draws the line between free speech and hate speech. That's something that every government does differently or every society and every legal system does differently. The U.S. has its approach. Mm-hmm. European countries have a, have a different approach, which is embedded in a historical context. So, I mean, Australia has, has its own approach and it has worked. It's not that we people constantly um, have to watch what they say, in, in my view. Um, and, as I said, um, hate speech leads to um, violence. We, we know that, whether it's directly or indirectly. There are, there are studies um, in, in, um, now increasingly also in Australia. Um, there was a recent study in, in New South Wales that said hate crime increased in New South Wales um, enormously in the last few years, uh, very high, and it's mainly against Muslims. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that Muslims are just such a small minority in terms of demographics, it's, it's interesting that that. that public rhetoric uh, seems to be connected and studies to, to the um, rise in hate crimes against Muslims. And um, studies in the U.S. confirm that where Trump was on, you know, his, held his um Yeah, that he, he really did take over that political rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. It, goes, it goes up and you know that it went up especially in terms of crimes against those groups that he targeted. So it's not... 100% robust evidence that this is connected. But there is, but there's a there's strong, definitely a stable link. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, thank you so much. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to uh, end the interview. <laughs> unfortunately, we've run over time. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about this research. It's really fascinating. I'd love to get you back on to talk about it some other time. Um, but yeah, have a lovely morning. Thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to Wednesday, Wednesday Breakfast. We'll You're be right back. listening to Freezer, 8.55 a.m. The voice of the community. My name is Ruby Susan Mouth. My pronouns are they. You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio, and that was Binde with Stella, Rosie, and Claudia on. Hello, I'm Liz Wright. Welcome to Are You Looking at Me and International Day for People with Disability. Today on the show, we meet Trish Maloney and Frank Corbenti. Did you miss our 12-hour special broadcast for International Day of People with a Disability? Radical Disabled programmers discuss the NDIS, Aboriginal rights, creativity, youth access, financial security, parenting, LGBTIQ, intersections and so much more. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash disability day 2018 and listen back anytime.
Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate, and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counseling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR. We were just talking to Dr Mario from Vic Uni, who in association with his um, comrades... Muhammad Iqbal and Deborah Smith have just kind of been doing um, or putting out some research mapping networks of far-right movements in Victoria. And we were just discussing kind of the rise around that and the use of political rhetoric and feeding it. You are listening to Wednesday Breakfast. And right now on the phone, we have Desiree Tsai, who is the National President of the National Union of Students. Desiree, are you there? Hello, Desiree? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for joining us on Wednesday Breakfast. You're in... Canberra right now for the announcement of the uh, the federal budget, which happened last night. Um, how was the whole experience? Yeah, it's been super exciting. Obviously, yesterday was the big day. A lot of people around um, journalists running around like crazy, and of course, everyone was <laughs> waiting for the big moment at seven thirty to hear what was in the budget, what was left out. Um, all that really exciting stuff. Mm, and the answer to what was left out seems to be. A lot. Um, I'm kind of leafing through the front pages and everyone's getting a massive... Oh, no, I won't say that. But everyone's getting really excited about this um, this tax cut. But we're, we're interested in the concerns of students and young people. And the NUS was really hoping for things like um, a uh, increasing public investment into higher education and um, abolishing the health loan limit. Um, can, do, do you know if any of the um, the things that we really wanted to see as students were delivered? Yeah, so, of course, yeah, things around higher education, um, measures around welfare, particularly around students living in poverty, and then climate change was the other big one that we were lobbying for, and we actually yeah, didn't really see much. I don't think anyone really expected to see much about that in this budget either. It's obviously not a budget targeted at students and young people, um, you know, education funding just has kind of remained stagnant. I know there was an announcement around um, TAFE and apprenticeship funding, but, you know, that's kind of like a pin drop in the, like, in terms of the raft of the issues that have happened in the TAFE sector because of um, this government's cuts previously. So it's like, you know, take take away $3 billion, give back $500 million. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the tax cuts will not benefit students who are, like, the majority of us are on low income. Um, they'll benefit middle to high income earners a lot more than we will see that. Um, yeah, and then in terms of uh, things around the climate, like, it's really... Um, yeah, can we maybe um, just because we are talking about young people and um, something yeah. that's really important for young people are, and you mentioned this earlier climate spending um yeah. so we're looking over the, like the, the the climate solutions fund that the coalition had been touting mm-hmm. was supposed to be two billion dollars which is a nice amount of money 
um, not enough, but still a good amount of money yeah. to um, to fighting um, anthropogenic climate change. Um, although there are still people in the coalition who are super shaky about that, which is stupid. But anyway, um, yeah. <laughs> this was supposed to be over 10 years, but it, they've now decided that it'll be over 15 years. So that's an effectively a cut f- uh, from... 200 million to 133 million dollars over the life of the fund per year. Um, so that's a, that's a reduction in spending on fighting climate change. Is this very bad or just very, very, very bad? <laughs> <laughs> you have to say very, very bad. You know, um, this government has been talking about, you know, or kind of boasting about having this, um, massive surplus, but, you know, I don't think young people and students really care about a surplus if, you know, our planet is going to be, like, inherently changed because we haven't managed to turn around the effects of climate change. You know, uh, everyone kind of knows that we have um, 11 years to basically turn this all around, which is really terrifying for young people, and apparently um, our decision-makers still don't get that. So, yeah, that was really disappointing. Mm. And we were speaking to some folks from Extinction Rebellion, which is a um, a, a climate... Um climate protectors sort of activist organization and they were talking about how in some ways it's already too late we've already lost our first mammalian species here in australia um directly linked to anthropogenic climate change and the climate emergency so i i guess would like this is a bit of a depressing question but would would anything that the government had to announce in its federal budget really have made a dent in in climate change and made some real change for young people? Is this something that you were hoping for in the first place? Um, I don't think we were expecting it, and I don't think we've seen it. Um, mm. This government, I mean, it's led by, um, you know, leaders and po- politicians who don't believe in the urgency of our climate crisis. Like Scott Morrison, the leader, like our Prime Minister, he brought a lump of coal into Parliament a couple of years ago, um, and there are still people in the party still people in the coalition who are pushing for more coal mines. Even in this budget, you know, they've um, barely talked about renewables and one of the measures that's in there is actually a new gas mine in the Northern Territory. Um, so, yeah, Shocking. really as as bad as expected. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Sorry, I said shocking before. What I meant to say is unsurprising, but shocking. Mm. Um, yeah, so... This, I suppose I don't want to give too much supremacy to the whole narrative that a federal budget would actually mean something. I mean, it's a government which at its essence is white supremacist, anti-climate, anti-human. So I think it might be worth moving on to the student value survey that the National um, Union of Students has has completed. Can you tell us a bit about the survey, what, what it was seeking to find? Yeah, so I don't think a survey like this has really been done before or in the last um, little while, but it's basically about what do students believe, what do students care about, um, because I think we never really hear the student perspective mm. in any really public discourse, uh, especially within government within decision-making in the country. So um, we did the survey as a way to say, well, here are the things that students care about, um, We've done a survey about it specifically sound. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously you're not listening to us. Um, so, yeah, one of the biggest things that came out of it was concern over climate change. Mm. It, like, was um, above all the biggest issue. Like, 83.2% of the respondents 
um, said that we should tackle climate change even if it affected economic prosperity. Obviously, that's a big shift from what is in the current public narrative, which is, you know, full of people who are older than students, um, who are kind of, like, still very worried about, you know, oh, if we do this renewable target or whatever, um, we're going to, you know, our economy's going to go down. I think a lot of young people realise that actually uh, that's going to be a reality. <laughs> Might as well act sooner than later. Absolutely. So, um, uh, what was the, the intention of the survey? The, the federal budget has been touted by mm-hmm. a lot of mainstream media organizations, so I feel like missed the point, but they, they tout the budget as something that's meant to win back voters. And so the student value survey in that context sounds a bit like it's a statement of students as to what they want to see in the upcoming election. Is that, is that an accurate thing to say? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so I know that we can't, um, We've been talking a lot about the the coalition government's um, budget and its failure to address climate change, its failure to produce anything of meaning to students, um, especially in terms of social welfare. Um, And we can't really talk about what Labor has to say because their response won't come out until Thursday. Mm -hmm. Um, But what are your hopes from the, the Labor Party? They've sort of been bad but not as bad as the coalition in the past when it comes to um funding for higher education in particular is something that i'm thinking about is this Mm. is this something that you have hope for yeah i think uh well i think anything compared to this budget for students would probably be better um and i think that we will be talked about um you know uh with the liberalism government students are like much worse off even if labor has its issues um, like tangibly, like they will be talking about education. We know that they've already announced massive spending in higher education, massive review of TAFE and universities to try and um, make it better for our future. Um, you know, compared to what the coalition's offering, it sounds like, you know, really fantastic. Um, and that's obviously from the perspective of students who have just kind of been ignored for the past six years. Mm. Now, um, I, I did want to talk just very briefly about this because I'm not 100% on the National Union of Students um, position. We were talking earlier in the show about New Start and how it hasn't mm. risen for 25 years. Um, yeah. What what does the National Union of Students have to say about um, our social welfare support systems? Well, it really is inadequate for um, young people and students, particularly obviously we're talking about students, um, but in general, uh, obviously, yeah, New Start hasn't risen for that amount of time. Um, a, a majority of students who, well, all students on the income support are living way below the Henderson poverty line. Um, and it's, you know, uh, I think student income payments used to be a couple of decades ago, you know, at like about 75% of that, um, of that, you know, measurement. And now it's like just, continued to drop and now it's at around 50 to 60 um, percent, which is like, you know, really, really terrible. A lot of students are living in poverty and it is because of government inaction on these issues um, and the, like, lack of willingness to uh, um, understand the important role that, like, our welfare system plays mm. in helping support our most vulnerable and I have hope that the National Union of Students will continue to campaign on this issue. Um, if a student is listening and they are interested in getting involved, they really care about 
um, the student's voice on climate or on um, improving, uh, on fighting um, poverty amongst young people and students. Um, how can they get involved in the National Union of Students? Yeah, well, for a starter, um, White House social media, Facebook's a good place to start. Mm-hmm. There's National Union of Students on there. And um, if you're on campus, if you're a uni student, I'd encourage you to get involved in your student union because um, that's, you know, your advocacy group on campus. Um, and we liaise with a lot of student unions and we run our campaigns through that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on to to give uh, a response to the federal budget, such as it is. I've been speaking to the national president of the National Union of Students, Desiree Sy. Um, Desiree, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks yes. for having me. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, Hi. we're from Braver College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8:55 a.m. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're 100% cotton and Australian-made, and you can get one for just $30. They come in black, dark grey, and a cool light grey. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 94198377, or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. And you are listening to 3CR. We're going to play a song for you. Um, It's Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile mixing up with a beautiful collab called Continental Breakfast. I listen to this uh, most mornings getting up. It's a wonderful start of the day. Wednesday Breakfast. And uh, we hope you enjoyed that song by Courtney Barnett and Kurt Vile, Continental Breakfast. What a nice way to start the day. It's a nice slow one. I always like slow music at the start mm, of the day. Mm. I can't handle the, the heavy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, although there's going to be loud music tonight. Yeah. At the Jaburung um, Embassy film, uh, f- sorry, music fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Um, I did mention it earlier in the show, but just in case you're just tuning in now or you tuned in halfway through the show tonight at 7 p.m. at the Gasometer Hotel, mm-hmm. there will be a fundraiser for the Jaburung Heritage Protection Embassy. Um, so I have not been able to head, head up to the tent embassy where they, um, they are protecting their cultural heritage, the Jaburung people from, um, from Vic Roads and from mm. the, um, the state government, which wants to chop down all of those culturally important, spiritually important Beautiful trees, trees. Um, over near Ararat for the duplication of the Western Highway. Um, and so if you want to support the work that Jaburung people are doing to protect their own land... A little to, close to home. <laughs> yes, then um, who, are, who are fighting colonisation as it exists in this modern era, mm. then go over to the Gasometer Hotel where there's going to be great music. Um, you can grab a drink. You don't have to, but you can um, 
donate directly to the Jabwaring Embassy. It's at the gasometer. It's night at 7 p.m. Uh, tickets are $15, um, although I do believe that they have different prices if you're on a low wage. So definitely head along to that. Um, and then also on Friday night at 7.30 at the Victoria Street Mall, which is on Victoria Street in Coburg, um, there's going to be a community dinner and um, there's a buy-in to that and the opportunity to donate directly to the Jabwarung Heritage Protectors um, Embassy directly. And that's going to be this Friday at 7.30 at the Victoria Street Mall mm. in um, at Street Market. Uh, mall thingo, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Go out to Victoria we, Street in yeah, Coburg. The thingo we know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really lovely space, um, the community space where they'll be having a really pleasant dinner. Mm. Um, and so I just thought I'd mention those again. Um, so yeah, definitely. Definitely well, go on with that. Yeah. Um, so we're just going to go quickly into the weather before we do a quick wrap-up and goodbye. Um, today you're looking at a max of 25 degrees with a possible light shower, 40% chance mm-hmm. of rain, and like a north-northwesterly wind. So it shouldn't be too cold. No no breezes coming from the Antarctic, which is my pet hate. <laughs> mm. We've had some absolutely wonderful people on here on the show. So at the start at uh, 7.30, we had a few people from the AGM. C. So that was uh, Dr. Maria and Budini? Budi. 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 Um, both from the Australian um, GLBTQ. I, I may have gotten the acronym wrong, but the important thing is that they, they care about multicultural queers. Mm. And so that's what the survey is going to be on. If you want to find that survey, go to agmc.org.au slash racism survey. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Dr. Maria's phone number, if you don't have the internet and you still want to participate in the survey, you can call 0414-804-529, but please call only during reasonable hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to point out that we've had a comment from a listener um, rec- regarding the budget, um, something that we did leave out, um, but that would also be important, not just to young people, but all people, um, is that, that this year's Defence Force expenditure has risen to $200 billion, mm. which is crazy. how much the federal government is, is expecting to spend fighting the climate emergency <laughs> over the next 15 years. Gosh. So that's... Horrifying. Bad. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, so if you want to find out more about... Oh, what you can do about this, but also and, what mm. what actually matters. Um, then stay tuned to 3CR for more budget analysis this morning. City Limits is going to be on at 9am, um, just uh, the show after Stick Together, which is after us. And then at 10am, um, Anarchist World This Week is going to be um, providing more budget analysis. So stay tuned. Yeah. Um, we are... Oh, sorry, just quickly, because we've got one minute left. I am grateful for... Uh, I'm grateful for autumn. I'm looking forward to cool weather. How about you, Aiden? I am grateful for jumpers. I'm really getting into them with this cold weather. Hey. Like you will, I'm looking forward to the... I'm loving the cool change. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Got my beanies going. Um, this has been Wednesday Breakfast. I hope you have a beautiful day, folks. Mm. Um, stay tuned for Stick Together. Mm, stick Together. Woo! 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03-9419-8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.